0: As you'll see in a moment, this is a paper about anxiety and insecurity. This is very apt, as presenting in front of one's own colleagues causes very high levels of both anxiety and, indeed, insecurity. Um, So, West African uh, masquerades disguised performances are often seen as repositories, cultural tradition, gerontocratic authority, the reproduction of cosmological, gendered, generational orders. But this is a story of a thoroughly modern militant mask. A story that encounters literary giants, James Bond, the Oscars, gangster rap, and Niger Delta warlords. So my research has been looking at why youth in the Niger Delta are into masking. And specifically, this mask called Hagaba. Sometimes it's known as Mbedike, time of the brave or time of the strong. And these are names from the Igbo language. The mask indeed originates from Igbo-speaking communities in southeastern Nigeria. In his world-famous trilogy of novels about the impact of colonialism on Igbo society, Chinua Achebe wrote about Agaba. He wrote, The mask arrived appropriately on the crest of the excitement, the crowd scattered in real or half-real terror. It approached a few steps at a time, each one accompanied by the sound of bells and rattles on its waist and ankles. Its body was covered in bright red cloths, bright new cloths, mostly red and yellow. The face held power and terror. Each exposed tooth was the size of a big man's thumb. The eyes were large sockets as big as a fist. Two gnarled horns pointed upwards and inwards above its head, nearly touching at the top. It carried a shield of skin in the left hand and a huge matchet, in the right. Quo, quo, quo. It sang like cracked metal and its attendant replied with a deep monotone-like groan. Hmm, hmm, hmm. There was not much song in it. But then an agaba was not a mask of song and dance. It stood for the power and aggressiveness of youth. So these words from Echebe give us a clue to the ways in which this mask has always been closely associated with the identity, masculinity, quests for power and autonomy of young men, despite the contested history of masking in southeastern Nigeria. Perceptions of masquerades over time are ambivalent here. On the one hand, they can be seen as something of the conservative past, and by Christians they can often be seen as demonic. When the Bible was translated into local Nigerian languages, many refer to the devil in the words that are the names of masks. And in colonial propaganda films, the forces of male gerontocracy and tradition were represented by agatha masqueraders. So the 1949 Oscar-winning Daybreak in Udi was an account of the construction of a maternity hospital, a tale of progressive welfareism that the elders of the community tried to frustrate by frightening and intimidating the newly trained Midwives with nocturnal appearances of Agaba. But of course, on the other hand, these masks often represent cultural heritage in many different senses. Attitudes towards cultural heritage changed rapidly. As some of you will know, I worked on the mysteries surrounding the man-leopard murders in this region in the late 1940s. And during the investigations, the colonial police raided, collected, publicly burned the objects, including masks, held at over 800 shrines for fear that there was an association between the murders and shrine priests. But just a few short years after this, this famous circular was sent to all local government authorities in 1955 from the newly founded Department of Antiquities. Here, the director of the Department of Antiquities wishes it to be as widely known as possible that he's prepared to accept for safekeeping any carvings or articles accepted with the former religions and rituals of the people of Nigeria. Their destruction is the destruction of the cultural heritage of the country. So rather than burning these masks and idols, they should then be preserved in the new museums. And as cultural heritage, masks are celebrated at festivals, Christmas, New Year, and in domestic life-cycle rituals, and especially at burials. And it's as festivals the recent history of Agava starts. Ibo traders who moved to the coastal cities of Port Harcourt and Calabar and here uh, to western Nigeria for business during the 1940s and 50s took their master plays with them. In Port Harcourt they were named Montana at a time when Buffalo Bill films were popular at the cinema and young men would dress up as cowboys to watch them. These agaba groups would play at school festivals, carnivals and on Ibo den. But after the Nigerian Civil War, and with the Igbo traders leaving the cities, losing their property, the Agaba masquerade was taken over by other local young men. In Calabar, it was led by a group of ethic-speaking boxers and weightlifters from the poorer neighbourhoods in the south of the city. And in Port Harcourt, Okrikan and Calabari men set up groups known as 50-50, and this one, 007, another reference to the movies. After the oil boom and during the recession years of the 1980s, youth unemployment in these cities was known as the Agaba syndrome. And after clashes with the police, there were attempts to ban the Agaba masquerade, especially in Calabar, where there was a kind of gang complex in the uh, uh, South, the poorer South uh, neighborhoods of the, of the city, that had built themselves around mutual support and internal rivalry. In recent years, the Agaba groups have been linked with the control of drugs trade, both in in Calabar and Port Harcourt, and political violence. So back in Port Harcourt, the groups mobilised around control of... uh, Sorry, this is a notice of uh, banning uh, the uh, Agaba mask in in Calabar. So back in Port Harcourt, the groups mobilised around the control of cannabis and cocaine, sold at a field known as Columbia, in reference to popular movies and news reports, covering the South American drug trade, portrayed here in Charles Udoffia's sand painting. And Agaba has a long history of electoral disorder. Agaba in Calabar started out collecting voter registration cards and selling them to political candidates. And over time, especially after the 1999 return to multi-party democracy, political patronage around elections has involved mobilising increasingly well-armed groups, including Agaba, Uh, creating the conditions for violent youth mobilisation on a regional scale. So these street gangs uh, established Creek Alliances that became alienated after the 2003 River State election. At that moment, over 100 named gangs, a standing army of the dispossessed, some commentators claimed, were criminalised, they were banned by the River State government at the time but were mobilised under rival groups, the Niger Delta Volunteer Force and the Niger Delta Vigilantes, who later became MEND. And they were at the vanguard of the insurgency, a sustained campaign um, from 2006 six seven of kidnapping, oil theft and sabotage against the oil companies in the Nigerian state across the delta, leading up to the amnesty that was declared in 2009. Now, it's important... Just to be clear, that the Agaba masquerade wasn't itself mobilised in militant insurgency. But prominent Agaba members, including a man known as Occasion Boy, were instrumental in forming these factions as varsity cults. These are gangs on the university campuses, the so-called clansmen. They all have Norse mythology, clansmen, buccaneers. Um, the clansmen uh, merged with a street gang known as Daybang. And these, their rivals then recruited Agaba and became a kind of rival alternative, Daywell or the Icelanders or the Germans under uh, this man Tung. and there remains a kind of sharks versus jets kind of structural opposition between the the cult groups that that maps onto different uh, parts of Port Harcourt of main town and Dürr and to illustrate how interconnected Agaba is to all of this um, today High Chief Ateke Tom, the ex-veteran militant warlord, um, is not only a wealthy contractor um, for security contracts of the very pipelines that they were stealing fuel from. Uh, He's a key political player. Here he is being installed as a traditional ruler. This is a picture of his coronation. And today he's also the grand patron of Port Harcourt's main Agaba group, a group known as Area United. And here they are um, performing in his hometown. So the legacy of this youth conflict and of cult wars continues to be felt and brings, us, brings our story right up to the present. In addition to Port Harcourt and Calabar, my research site uh, is a rural community in State called Ukanathom. Uh, Agaba was banned there in 2005 after a clash with the police. But over the last two years, militant gangs, the Icelanders, Uh, originating from Port Harcourt have been responsible for a series of political assassinations, kidnappings and attacks on markets and security posts. As a result, schools have been closed for two years and many of the people I've been working with there are IDPs in uh, neighbouring towns. Several of the Agaba boys performing and singing in this talk uh, have been killed as a result of this violence. Again, I should emphasise that these militants are not Agaba um, but they are or imagine themselves to be part of the same political networks. So this Facebook video circulated a few months ago in which these village militants sought protection from the very same Tom. And just last month, the state governor, Emmanuel, conceded to offer amnesty uh, to the militants of ukanifom My friends there understand this as a cynical ploy to co-opt these groups into his 2019 election campaign after Christmas in return for 1 million naira each. That's about 2,000 pounds. So today, Agaba is a mask that has slipped its ethnic roots. It's become a play of and for the youth in these rural communities. There are no elders to the play. It's spread right across the region's rural and urban communities. And while it distinguishes itself from them, Agaba gives us an insight into the youth culture, language, aesthetics, conceptions of youth and masculinity... Idioms of solidarity that are common to a range of youth cults and gangs that have developed complex political links between the city streets and the Delta Creeks. A public discourse on Agaba and similar youth cults and gangs associates its members with wanton violence as a threat to the moral fabric of communities in southern Nigeria that are imagined in predominantly Christian idioms. In public discourse, then, Agaba as a subversive criminal demonic and deviant force of disorder. So this potted history of Agaba is also a history of insecurity, which brings me to the second part of my talk. So working with colleagues and students in recent years, I've been encouraged to consider the productivity of anxiety, uncertainty, insecurity. What kinds of qualities of social relations or orientations to the future Do people have when fundamental questions about job security, health diagnosis, economic opportunity, state intervention, are inherently precarious, unpredictable and uncertain. My take on this semantic constellation of uncertainty, contingency, anxiety and risk, is to think about insecurity. And I've been looking at this in relation to um, intergenerational histories, vigilantism, as well as Agava and the cult gangs. And in this context, I've been trying to develop an understanding of what Niels Bubanch refers to as vernacular insecurity. So, inspired by the songs and slangs of Nigerian cult boys who talk of themselves and their everyday experience as rugged in the sense of being arbitrary and unpredictable, my starting point is not episodic moral panic or crises, but of radical insecurity, a structure of feeling Processes which create a pervasive sense of vulnerability, anxiety, and threat. Let me illustrate this with the lyrics of a song. In fact, this is my favorite Agawa song. Oh, this life I want so this is a, a song that describes rugged lives of young, marginalized cult boys and it's an uncertain life that they want to fresh, they want to leave. Um, and they equate it with uh, uh, gangster violence. It's a life of material aspiration, of cars, and of avoiding the police. The irony, the joke in the song, is that he doesn't want to buy a Mercedes. He wants to buy a Nissan Pathfinder Jeep, the Pathinda. But he knows that in his rugged life, this will probably ultimately mean ending up on a police warrant. And the maritime chorus of sailing or persevering connects the song to hundreds of others that I've recorded, which resonate with the imagery of piracy and mafioso um, into the songs and slangs, the Jarrus's, of campus cults, the Buccaneers and the Vikings, of street gangs, the Bam and Daywell, and to militant groups across the delta. They're all interconnected groups of rugged men who sing rugged songs. So this conception of a tough, arbitrary, unpredictable life in anem, intime intimate which kind of means trouble, or anything can happen. How useful is this emic vernacular perception of the rugged life in understanding the lived experience, the life worlds of young southern Nigerians, more than offering are laconic representations of their lives, isn't insecurity configured in this rugged life concept productive of young people's sociality and subjectivity and aren't modes of asserting identity, authority, claims to truth produced by a context of radical, enduring insecurity. Now I don't want to get too distracted here by the vast literature on risk and insecurity other than briefly to navigate... Around the kind of status discourses that link Deleuze and Qatari's permanent molecular insecurity and the micromanagement of fear to um, existential insecurity, which directs society's anxieties onto the other of refugees and, and immigrants, onto Giddens and Beck and risk societies and modernity. Though I should mention that Beck, of course, points out. But a key feature of all of this theoretical literature around risk is its focus on a Western object of study. Um, He says, how can non-Western... So we could echo his question. How can non-Western risk society be understood by a sociology which so far has taken it for granted that its object, Western modernity, is at once both historically unique and universally valid? So on the African continent kind of foundational reading around this is Mbembe and Reutemann's um, idea of insecurity that they simply refer to as the crisis, the conjunction of economic depression, instabilities, fluctuations and ruptures, giving rise to experiences lived by people at all levels of society, defined by physical and mental violence. There's a continuous ongoing permanence to this, captured in Tausig's sense of the nervous system, linked perhaps to Leukmann's kind of idea of an all-encompassing social condition of war and Vig's idea of seeing crisis as context, despite Reutemann's recent critique. In Signal and Noise, Brian Larkin, staying with Nigeria, suggests that contemporary Africa is marked by a constant fight against the insecurity of everyday life. This insecurity, he says, is a generalised condition that's also economic, social and spiritual. And this is a clue to my own... Direction, which is kind of threefold. Firstly, that this radical insecurity that I'm writing about is neither paralyzing nor entropic. Um, secondly, it's an approach that sees insecurity as productive of different modes of practice and politics. It's productive of niches that my informants carve out for profit and protection, for evidence and truth. And thirdly, rather than address the concept of insecurity holistically, although that does kind of reflect its depth and range, it's also necessary to delineate key axes upon which insecurity is experienced more precisely and to focus in on physical, material, political and epistemological dimensions of insecurity. So I won't dwell on the kind of physical dimension though you'll get the idea from the case study of, of Buchanethon's latest encounter with um, the cult groups um, that physical insecurity is often wrought by fear of the armed robber, the militant and the cult boy. On the axis of material insecurity, I'm kind of capturing here the inequalities of urban and rural livelihoods. For the large cohorts of youth in the Delta, livelihoods are marginal and mobile. Many who are stuck in the compound find themselves in this precarious position precisely because a senior family member, their father, uncle or mentor, hadn't been able to complete their sponsorship for their education, their apprenticeship. Many get by by hustling as couts or agbro, which is a fantastic word. Most definitions of agbro refer to street um, thugs or miscreants, small-time extortionists. Agbro is a kind of trickster who survives, who can eat, without having real work, without having handwork. And the moral reckoning of honest labour, like taxi driving is real work, and loading the vehicle is agbro work. On another axis of political insecurity, this is enmeshed in risks of exclusion in the politics of belonging and isolation in the politics of patrimonial networks. These exclusionary practices are configured in the logics of proving who's who. (coughs) These identities are frequently asserted, violently at times, in rights over employment and um, contract opportunities with the oil companies. Lines of inclusion and exclusion are constantly redefined between indigens and settlers or strangers and at levels far below ethnic significations to lineage and family. Sometimes uncertainties around opportunities youth routinely insert themselves into practices of recruitment, appointment and election to vet and screen candidates on the basis of their claims to authentic indigenous origin and their character or demeanour. And risks are also attached to authority. Patrons and patronage are precarious. The Nigerian political economy is defined, above all, by a mode of political domination, defined by personalised patrimonial distribution and excess. Being without a patron is risky, and capturing a patron is a necessary labour. In both situations, knowing what patrons are doing is paramount and requires a constant vigilance over their behaviour, consumption and connections. And finally, on the axis of epistemological insecurity or the insecurity of knowledge, this centres on anxieties over the authenticity of information and the veracity of claims in a highly generalised context of fraud, 419 tricksters, and everyday deception. This is a context of fake licences, fake drugs, fake certificates, fake policemen, fake fuel. It's a context in which misfortune points to proximate social contingencies and to the spiritual insecurities that Ashworth identifies in relation to the fear of witchcraft, accusation and attack. Now, no single ethnographic example will capture all of these dimensions, these axes of insecurity, or how perception and practice are formed by them. But I hope that the following will give some sense of how multifaceted insecurity is and how the practices of young men produce the insecurity that they're also victims of. Indeed, it's this production of insecurity that's constitutive of the politics of youth in Nigeria. So, I'd known one young man um, from the village where I've lived in Nigeria for about four years before the following events unfolded. He was 20 when I first met him, and struck a a tall, confident pose in the first Agaba performances. Sorry, catch up with myself. In the first Agaba performances I witnessed, he caught the eye. Stripped to the waist, he, his face covered in talcum powder, he galloped round the dance circle, flashing a cutler's sword above the drummer's heads. His nickname, his guy name, perhaps unsurprisingly, is Warrior. Now, Warrior is a rugged guy. He'd been in student cults at secondary school level. He was a bunkerer that's oil theft in Warrior. A Daywell street gang member in Port Harcourt. He'd been an aggro tout in Marwan watersides in Port Harcourt. And when I first caught up with him, he said he'd joined Agaba for all the usual reasons, for friendship, for protection, because he liked the performance, but also to use the spirit, the spirit of Agaba, to identify the person responsible for the unexpected deaths of members of his own family, including his elder brother, who'd been an armed robber. Like many young men who'd lived, worked and fought on the streets of Port Harcourt, he'd come home to Ucanifon, a local government two hours away, in 2003, after the ban on the street gangs. On his return, Warrior had been working in a new motor park. Like many uh, village and local government councils, there's an overwhelming pressure from young men, including those who've returned from Port Harcourt, to be given jobs to tout in motor parks, to provide more time slots for when fair commissions could be earned, like working on a Sunday. Or even better, To make whole new motor parks um, like the one that was established in 2004 for vegetable goods where uh, Warrior worked. So, work at motor parks, monthly handouts, um, that were formerly just a kind of list of thugs or election supporters, um, uh, and which are now slightly more sophisticated and kind of organized around skills acquisition programs, um, are how local authorities. Attempts to keep uh, violent youth on side, in check, in employment. It's kind of amnesty by any other name. Now, on the 4th of December 2007, Warrior and several of his friends, friends who together called themselves the Niger Delta Boys, intercepted a shipment of 49 drums of bunkered, stolen oil being smuggled through the creeks and out to supplies and drums along the Aba Uia Expressway. It had become common practice for youth of each village through which the shipment passed to be settled with several thousand naira in order for the route to be secured. The police and local government officials were also said to have been paid off in this way. On this occasion, however, Warrior and his mates decided the settlement was not sufficient and they stole the stolen fuel from proper Niger Delta boys, the militants, the real heavily armed groups who returned to Warrior's village with a heavy machine gun and in the ensuing shootout, recovered their oil drums and left one of the village boys dead. When I arrived for field work over Christmas that year, I heard that Warrior had been in police custody at area command for the last two weeks. When the police had swooped, they'd arrested 28 youth, releasing 23 of them a few days later, um, they were having extorted 50,000 naira bail from each. The remaining five, including Warrior, had been kept in custody because the village council, the chief and elders of this village, had written a petition against the boys, these Niger Delta boys, because of the trouble that they'd caused with the bunkered fuel, and because, allegedly, they'd been pocketing a flat rate fee that they were supposed to return to the village authorities for the running of their motor park. On the 7th of January, Warrior was released, and I caught up with his friend, Scientist, who'd also been held. We had beers, and they told me a story that I found incredible. They said that they'd been held at the Ikhra Akban Abiyah police headquarters in a room with 30 other men. The room was so small, the number of men so large, that they couldn't sit or lie down. They'd stood for three weeks, they claimed. When they complained about the swelling in their lower legs, and showed me the running sores on their feet and calves, I began to understand. The rations they'd received were so meagre that they thought they'd gone without food for at least one of the weeks. Many did not survive this ordeal still others as their cases were progressed were taken outside and shot Warrior presented his survival as the triumph of his personal power that his own spiritual medicinal protection derived from agaba and elsewhere had kept him alive A local politician a state house of assembly member whose guy name is Prosper eventually bailed the boys No weapons had been found in Warrior's home and no charges were brought The boys who were released, I later discovered, were loyal to Prosper's political godfather, a man who was appropriately named Strong. And now these troublesome young men owed him their lives. The community's reaction to Warrior's release and return home merits a brief footnote. He said he was mobbed by friends and neighbours. Some wanted to know upon whom he would take revenge for the petition. Who will he finish first, they asked. Others, the more persuasive as it transpired, urged him to attend church, to repent, to forgive, to be reborn. He wasn't sure, but he liked the attention. He'd overcome an ordeal, which proved his strength. He was feared, and for the first time since he was a child, he took his seat in the Quaido church. Warrior's Story, a brief episode in a life history of many similar incidents, resonates with a concept of radical insecurity and of the rugged life, the uncertain loyalties of patrons, Elders who support and then accuse young men. Politicians who denounce but secretly bail them. The unpredictability of authorities who are at once complicit in smuggling that they're said to combat. The assertion of identities of village youth securing ever more precarious economic niches, The conceptions of masculine power and protection through which the events are perceived, with contesting registers of spiritual presence bringing closure and order to events. Now, many individual features of warrior's story would be enlightened were they read through a lens, an overarching analytical framework commonly applied to Nigeria, of corruption, as Dan Smith has argued, insurgency, as Michael Watts says, vast wealth in Andy Aptos' approach, state excess and abjection, as Ovidari and Adabamwe say. But I wonder whether to appreciate the myriad ways of being and knowing, which can account for the contradictory and contingent ways in which order, security, truth and justice are sought, perhaps this rugged life idea, the framework of radical insecurity, does have its place. And perhaps when Warrior sings about the rugged life with his Agala troop, troupe, the biographical is implicated in the imagined world of song lyrics. So the histories of youth masking intersecting with oil economies um, And the political and performative construction of youth displayed in hyper-masculine contexts with laconic, insecure, uh, lyrical accompaniment is something I'm uh, coming to uh, explore in a little bit more detail uh, with some of the songs. But I just wanted to show you a short film of um, four Agatha performances. i awesome. Situations, performing the mask is a test it's a test of bravery of power in some versions of the masquerade individuals are demonstrating their strength by showing no fear when they're whipped with long aturi sticks um, each of these uh, hits kind of cuts you into the leg um, as I can attest um, and a successful mask is one that isn't disturbed by the police or by other masks um, from these masks, one of the key uh, features, really, um, is the sort of improvised nature of the traditions in each of these locations. They're each very open-ended, plural constructions of culture and aesthetics. Um, the dance performances, for example, are improvisational. Uh, individual dancers approach the main bank of seated drummers where they combine intricate steps with flashing swipes of unsheathed machetes and swords. One such improvisation is especially striking. As you saw, dressed in red, cooperate dances on his tiptoes and sways his hips, imitating a female form in a style that the boys call a shower or prostitute. The apparent contradiction here of a rugged young man dancing as a woman points to the ways in which the hyper-masculinity of West African young men is sometimes constructed by the conflation of gender categories. Agaba then performs at life-cycle rituals, at remembrance ceremonies at members, um, and uh, for, for members' ancestors, and at child naming ceremonies like this. Sometimes they'll perform as a band at football matches, at other times they'll be the entertainment when politicians visit local government headquarters. They're constantly seeking opportunities to perform in order to seek out political patronage. The aesthetics often shift according to context. Sometimes they perform actually as elders, as here, almost mocking uh, traditional authorities. Even the masks themselves, the physical carved wooden masks, are improvised. In the first clip you saw, that mask was just hired for the day, the one on the postcard, was just hired for the day's outing. Um, In in Calabar, the masking tradition there is actually appropriated from Ibibio and Anang. Ekbo mask It's not an Agaba mask at all. Um, but it's called Hanaga. Um And I had a mask carved for the Pitt Rivers Museum um, at, during uh, Easter this year. Um, again, the whole process was configured around improvisation. and um, uh, For several days, um, the people who were organizing the carving um, insisted to me that the carver that we'd hired was an authentic northern Igbo carver who'd come down specially to Port Harcourt. It was only after several days of interrogation that we just actually discovered he was just from the other side of town. And the imagery that um, he presented on the mask, um, which might look kind of incredibly meaningful and and, um, symbolic, was really drawn from the fact that there were several newspapers just lying around in the alley where we did the carving. And he just took the ideas of boxers and other kind of female figures from newspaper images. Hopefully, this particular mask will one day be on display in Fit Rivers. It's it's in a freezer there at the moment. Now, as Mitchell said of the Kaleida dance, it's actually the songs of the primary attraction. Despite the vigorous, noisy, empowered context of their performance, the songs are rich in an irony that undercuts the stereotypical image of these young men's societies as sinister and violent groups of hoodlums, miscreants and street urchins, and they reveal a surprising frankness about personal insecurities. The music of the Agaba masquerade is traditionally associated with the metal gong that you saw, especially in Calabar there, of Corgele, and the wooden flute, the orja. But the song repertoire recalls the king of high life, Port Harcourt's own, Cardinal Rex Lawson, as well as borrowing from prison songs, the Palm Wine Drinking Society, hymns with subverted lyrics. All of these are improvised by choir masters in Pidgin and Jaris' slang that's known as gyration music and is common across cults as well as within um, popular recording artists like Duncan Mighty, Port Harcourt's first son, we recorded with the Royal Boys, a kind of commercial Agava group. Most figurative among the Agaba songs are those that describe the rugged life of young men living in the city. They invoke maritime and mafia imagery. And in a similar way, to gang performance around the world, whether it concerns spirit possession, dancing or singing, these events, as Ferrandis puts it, open up social spaces where tenderness, humour, hope and solidarity intermingle with everyday tragedy. The political order is never far from the surface, and folk heroes, including the murdered rights activist Ken Sarawiwa and Dele Giwa, an activist journalist assassinated during the Abacha regime, are lauded in the songs. Many of the songs rehearse a chorus of identity. Identify yourself as a rugged man, identify with these folk heroes, or with the unlikely but tested and strong figures such as Osama bin Laden. And helplessness within the repertoire of a Gabba song. So they sing, Don't You Run Away, Don't You Run Away. If we jam a Gbesu boys, this is the militant cult from the Niger Delta, don't you run away. And at the same time, they lament love and loss in the city. Many songs are about women who refuse their advances until they say that they work for Shell. Or songs like this one, which bemoan the inability to marry and the loss of a girlfriend in the metropolis. (coughs) If you see <coughs> for if you see for it, for the <tries> for the future of the for future for future all these songs lament dashed ambitions with self-deprecating humour. I want to be a pastor, they sing, I no get Bible. I want to be a student, I no get Bible. The sense here and in other songs is to bemoan the trials and misfortunes associated with the rugged life. I was listening to this song again recently, drawing on a hymn as another reflection on the rugged life of making an account of oneself on, on judgment day. George Mende is coming, George Mende is coming, All oh, I was before they drove no I don't So woven into this song is the lament for friendship, reciprocity and relatedness, remembering who fed the cult boy during a prison sentence and rehearsing the general imperative to reciprocity and not to eat, to consume food or money alone. So, this is a wosky world, slang for its warlike arbitrariness, populated by winchy people, a conflation of witches and wicked people, usually referring to the police. And the police appear as the kind of arch enemies in the dramatis personae um, of the Agaba songs, popularized particularly by the royal boys and their commercial interpretation of Agaba music. Constantly uh, harassing these young men, partly because of their uh, role within the kind of um, taxi services in, in, in the city. They're asking the police to go to the neighbouring state to buy Elsa. They're ridiculing them for the only wear one because these young men are very fashionable, but the police have only got one uh, uniform. Um, and they're ridiculing the kind of petty corruption of police officers stopping traffic to collect um, small bribes. In recent years, um, Agaba can be found performing in um, music videos um, of some of the leading Nigerian artists, of Harry's song here in his 2017 hit Arabanko, um, and especially with um, Flavor, who is the darling of um, um hip hop, and who's um, really kind of re-engaged with Ogbele music, the, uh, um, the the metal uh, gongs. Indeed, it seems that there's a conversation that's emerging between this popular street genre of agaba and more formal artistic interpretations. Um, this is an image by my friend Shagun Ayasang, a Yoruba artist based in Port Harcourt, from 2009, trying to capture the interiority of agaba masquerading. This is a kind of masquerader and this is the mask, he said. Um, and agaba also appears in the photographic and video installation work of Zina Sarawiwa, The daughter of the murdered Ogoni rights activist. She's converted her father's office in main town, Port Harcourt, into the city's only art gallery. And like other female artists from Port Harcourt, like Sakari Douglas Camp, her work focuses on gender, oil, and masquerade. This is a series called Men of Ogele from 2014. This is um, Ogoni uh, agaba groups um, that emerged um, in the 1980s and 90s. she describes it as a masquerade full of wit, personality, and swagger. Others have written about how her photography displays a kind of vulnerable masculinity, stirring the historical and per- per- political circumstances of Orgele just beneath the surface. And to impress upon us the relationship between youth, masquerade, and oil, she proceeded the following year with a five stream video installation called Karigbo Pipeline where these Ogoni um, masqueraders are set against the infrastructure of the oil industry. So, the societies, clubs, dances, cults of urban, young African men have long provided a valuable lens on the dynamics of social change on the continent, sometimes old, sometimes new, but always creative and always of their moment. The study of young men's cults and dances has, rep- has presented, um, been presented from uh, various perspectives. So from Benny and Goma on the East African coast through the Kalela dance on the Copper Belt, Gumbay dances in the Ivory Coast, to Hauco in Ghana in Niger, cowboy cults across the continent to Odalay masquerades in Freetown Sierra Leone. These young men's performances speak to questions of urban adaptation, the aesthetics of masculinity, of encounters with the colonial and post colonial state. But I think that the features of the rugged life that I've tried to outline in this paper in relation to physical, material, political, epistemological insecurity combine to constitute, to be productive, of forms of sociality, subjectivity, modes of action that constitute a politics of youth. These politics of youth have produced warrior's story and account for the popularity and distribution of agaba. Speaking of life in the African metropolis... As a site of radical uncertainty, unpredictability, and insecurity, Ashilim Bembe says that under these conditions, culture and aesthetics become an open ended construction built into existing and often misused infrastructures. That's a phrase that tormented me in thinking about Agaba masquerading. It seems so readily to fit the idea that underneath the infrastructure of Agaba is the initiatory society, the secret cult. The quest for power and protection amongst young men and of ideas of masculinity, of being tested, of proving oneself. It's here that the secret cult, something existing but reused or misused, provides an appropriate idiom for the organisation and protection of marginalised young men from the iniquities of the rugged life. In the post-colonial context of what the Komarovs refer to as metaphysical disorder, the verification of knowledge by means that are beyond human agency, the remaking of selves out of the secrets of the supernatural, of familiar and effective frameworks in the quest for order and certainty. It's within these cultural understandings that masking practices retain their currency, and they do so in relation to and in transgression of a given normative historical landscape infused with historical ethics and Pentecostal imperatives to break with this past. And on top of this, returning to uh, Mbembe's metaphor, on top of this, the aesthetic forms in Agaba's practice and performance are protean, plastic, plural, open-ended. That's about borrowing and hiring a mask, grafting the society across villages and towns, singing about gangster rappers and international terrorists, performing in different guises. It's a kind of open-ended, improvised, plastic quality. So masquerade in the, exa- in the Agava example concerns the coding of a political category as cult boys, militants, and more generally as youth. Agaba captures and defines the exclusion and marginality of youth as a category that's socially disadvantaged, hounded by the police, excluded from normal reproductive relations as drug users, clients of militant leaders, and supporters of radical political figures. So why do young men who might otherwise be in church still perform these masquerades? Three regions seem to be crucial. In the context of this rugged life, for these young men, Agaba offers a platform social networks, protection and profit in Nigeria's patrimonial political economy. Through masquerade, youth are also able to configure a masculine identity that's tough, tested, rugged, both physically and spiritually. And finally, Agaba presents a powerful critique of the Nigerian social fabric. It's a space in which young men expose the inequalities and iniquities of their own position from the margin, projecting epistemological advantage onto their own disadvantage. In the words of another Agaba song, A dan don't tire me. So I've stopped that, thank you. <laughs>